but I can only hear myself. So, am I missing? Lord God, we know that you hear our calling and our praise for We're thankful for that, God, and to praise you for you. Not only on this day, but throughout the week in our hearts, the songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We ask God for your spirit to be upon us in special measure this evening as we promise you your word. Amen. You may be seated. M378.
We are called, as we read here, Lord, to forsake the world, even our closest friends, God, if they not follow you and try to lead us and tempt us towards wickedness and idolatry. Our God and Savior, we ask for the strength to persevere therein, even as we try to show them love and consideration, God. Nevertheless, our hearts shall be and always in your hands. We pray in particular this evening, as we think about our nation and the terrible path she has taken these last several generations, we ask God for righteous laws to be upheld in the land and wicked laws to be overthrown or ignored. For our leaders, God, to take a stand towards righteousness and to protect the people, and especially, Lord, your church, and that they would lead against the wicked leaders around us, Lord, to convince them or change them or bring them out of the way as best they can, God. We ask, Lord, for the repentance of those wicked leaders from the president down to the governor, Lord, to the local mayors and the like who are unbelievers, who often pretend to be Christians just to get a vote, and who are clearly, Lord, um, wicked in what their thoughts are and their desires, Lord, for this nation. And God, we pray for uh, leaders locally and across this nation, God, both at the county levels and the states, and laws that care, again, Lord, for the citizens and watch over them and protect them and our borders. We pray, God, for our peace and continued peace. We're grateful we don't have ongoing riots anymore, at least for now. And Lord, we pray for our uh, sister, our four countries, Lord, in Europe, uh, who birthed America historically. We pray for their peace, and the peace of Europe and uh, Russia, God, and Ukraine. And we ask, Lord, for your church as well across this world to be protected from persecution. Our brothers and sisters in the churches, Lord, there in Africa, uh, there in the Middle East, Lord, and elsewhere. We pray for those churches to stand firm, to be protected both in body and soul, our God and Savior. That your special providence be about and around them, uh, that they would have godly men rise up to protect them. Again, both body and soul, they may need to flee, Lord, give them good contacts and like to protect the families and the churches, and help, Lord, to establish faithful congregations, Lord, to follow you. No matter what we pray, for the pure preaching and practice of your word, we ask. And our hearts go out, especially for China, uh, Lord, although they are more or less a godless country, uh, with the vast majority of them uh, about atheists to one degree or another and play around with their own historical Buddhism and whatnot, uh, we hate to see what they're going through and ask, Lord, for mercies upon them and your providence, especially, again, for the Christians. And above all, Lord, in our particular case, we pray for the rocks and the separation from their own dearly beloved child. That these things would be dealt with and quickly, God, and they would come back to us and the sanity would be restored, and protection of your church again there and those underground hidden. Our Lord and Savior God above, you who are creator of heaven and earth, you who guide all things to your ultimate glory, we do pray for your church to be purified across this world, to stand firm, and to be a witness to this dark world. We pray and ask for our families, God. We're thankful and grateful for our families. We lift them up before you that you protect the husbands and wives, that they will grow in love for one another. Wives submitting to their husbands, and husbands leading and protecting their family and uh, their wives, in particular, God Almighty, and for the children to love both of them to grow and to stand firm, God. And we pray for those uh, families in the Christian churches around us, Lord, that have broken families, Lord, and they don't have a mother or a father, but what they have is Christian. We pray that their churches will come about and uh, surround them and comfort them and help them as best they can and lift them up and encourage them, Lord, and come alongside our God and Savior and love and help for the family and for the children in particular, God. Be with our children. 
They would grow up in the churches to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to stand firm against the temptation of the world, even if it means standing out and being strange. And so, Lord, we pray not only for our families and for our churches. We ask God for our work and our productivity this week, that we would persevere day by day and not give up, uh, to know that we are called to work and called to do and to be helpful in our families and our society, uh, Lord, and our churches, and that we would do thus one day at a time and not be overwhelmed, to be well organized, to take care of what we need to do and the right priorities, we pray. And, Lord, that we would indeed be productive and helpful throughout this week, God. We pray also, Lord, uh, for the coming droughts. There's already water restrictions on the uh, yards and the like. And we pray it would not get worse, Lord. In fact, we ask for wisdom that the leadership uh, would uh, stop growing, it seems to me, or something along the lines, and get more water and the like uh, through the the cities that we have here uh, so that we can break out of this drought and the like and especially would not affect the farms and our food supply. Protect us, we pray, God, as you continue to and, and have done for many, many generations in spite of our wickedness against you as a nation. And be with your church, especially we pray. Amen. We now have our tithes and offerings. rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Take these tithes and offerings, we pray, God, through the blood of Christ Jesus, to be used wisely and uh, most effectively for your kingdom's sake and work, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. This is a, a proverb I learned a long time ago, and I try to keep it in my heart as something, uh, as my prayer as well. Let us read it together. Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Let us pray. With these words, God, of this proverb, may we learn the art of moderation and the truth, Lord, that we should seek out and eschew lies and flee from them, God. Help us, we pray, in these two endeavors in our lives, in the day and age that hates moderation and hates the truth. In your name we pray. Amen.
We certainly live in an age of lies, half-truths, and full-fledged deception. And we also live, I think, not coincidentally, in an age of excess. And not just too much uh, material prosperity and the resultant obsession and overindulgences, but also growing poverty and profaning of God's creation and name. And so a proverb such as this is very helpful in our, to correct our past and to protect us, to reinforce our desire uh, to resist uh, these twin-ditch errors in the case of moderation in the second part of the prayer. So as we look upon this dual prayer, the prayer of truth and a prayer of moderation, and I'm going to mostly emphasize the latter part because it does, it spends more time on moderation, uh, to help us, to equip us in our minds and our emotions as well, to resist the world which wants us to fall into lies and errors and to overdo things and to become excessive. So the first point, prayer for truth or pray for truth, verse 7 He starts out, of course, two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die, uh, indicates to us the seriousness with which this prayer of his, a proverbial prayer that he has before the Lord, as something he takes as part and dear to his heart. Things that he requests of God before he dies, he wants these things in this life now or while he's alive, so that he may be a faithful follower of his Father above. It reminds us the importance of such prayers in our lives. Like a last meal, when before we go into eternity, we are asked, what's the one thing you want to have right now? He's saying, the things I want to have now are these two things. At least morally speaking, with the assumption, of course, he is a believer and follower of the Messiah to come. He has him. What else does he need? Well, God says, you live in the here and now, and you're supposed to pray before me in the covenant. So I've given you blessings, and at, like King Solomon, he prays for something wise. In this case, this two, this dual prayer of truth and moderation. A prayer that should be pressing for us. A perspective that helps put things in right priority for us. That helps us become more faithful to God in our sanctification and growth. This is a serious prayer for him, and it should be, I would argue, a serious prayer for us. Something perhaps you would print out and put on your door, in your Bible, certainly in your hearts, the prayer of truth and the prayer of moderation. The first point, of course, is the prayer of truth, but by negation, remove falsehoods and lies far from me. I want nothing to do with them. I don't want that propaganda. And unfortunately, we're awash in propaganda. We don't want those lies. The word uh, falsehood and lies are similar Uh, ideas and words. Falsehood there is vanity. And the empty values of this world is the idea here, or at least brought it that which is empty. As we read in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That is vanity and vain and worthless and has no substance in this world without Christ and our God. Or weightless, without gravity and everlasting essence, as it were. And it's fleeting. The values of this world is fleeting like the 15 minutes of fame of Hollywood. People get on TV, some tragic event happens, they want to jump in front of it. And it doesn't last. It sounds kind of exciting. It feels kind of exciting to see yourself on TV, people talking about you for a little bit on social media for a split second, for a few minutes, maybe even a day, but it goes away. And that's the values of this world. It's vanity. This world is full of emptiness and weightlessness. The empty pursuits of life to fulfill the void of following God, essentially, is what they're doing. Because they know there's a God. They know there's sin. 
and they don't know what to do with it. Or rather, they don't want to submit to God and repent to Him. And so they engage in vain efforts to do things and all kinds of things, every which way, but God's way, which is the way of repentance and the way of faith. He doesn't specify the falsehood. He doesn't specify the lies, but certainly he means all kinds of falsehood and all kinds of lies. They have similar problems back then as we have today. They too were human like us. They too had temptations towards vanity, uh, towards lies about what's important in life and what's significant. And they believed it was the wrong thing often. He also says lies. Of course, he's repeating himself, as often is the case in the Proverbs. Falsehood and lies. Not like they're two different specific classifications, but to heap up the idea of what he does not want around him. I suppose you can look at lies, which is a fine translation, as empty values dressed up, or vanity dressed up to look like something it's not. A lie. A facade. A cover upon the wretched... Wicked lies. Lies are all around us, unfortunately. Lies in this life, from little to large, are all empty and unfruitful. Lies cannot stand the test of life. They eventually unravel in the lives of those depending upon and standing upon those lies fall apart as well, as we know. Examples are plenty in this nation. People and their idea of money and the prosperity that comes with that and thinking that's important and significant in their life, and so they go further and further in debt and feel more and more miserable, become chained uh, to the creditors, for example, when they had opportunities not to be. They believe, unfortunately, on the flip flip side, others believe that money grows on trees and being irresponsible with money is okay. But again, it catches up with them, and life becomes hard for them often, more often than not in this life. Others have a strange lie of sorts that, I've encountered, unfortunately, even in Christian circles sometimes, uh, something good will happen, a kind of a Pollyannic, Pollyannish view of life, that doing nothing will bring something good to you somehow. It's a strange way of thinking, but it happens. Political lies, I can give those and multiply them. They're easy targets. And lie to us, doesn't matter what party it seems, over and over again, about what's the best thing for us, what's going to work, and what's going to make life better for us. And by life, again, that's part of the lie, because they emphasize the life of here and now. Money, money, prosperity, that's what we're going to give you. Nothing about God, nothing about eternal values, following Him and the Gospel. But behind the politics often is the implicit lie, this is all there is in life. Live for the moment. Do all that you can and spend it all now. And make sure you spend it on my product and not my competitors. It's all over this nation. We're inundated with it. The pervasive lie of all that is materialism, isn't it? We put a nice fancy label on it. We call it materialism. That is, all that's real in life is that which is physical. Like this podium. Or these books are my shoes. That's it. And so what happens here is what's significant. It's what's eternally important, which is to say there is no eternality because once you're dead, that's it. You go back to the earth from whence you came because all you have is a body, not even a soul. And so happiness, then, is everything you can grab here and now. And we're seeing the fruits of it, unfortunately. And part of the fruits of it is an increase in drug addiction, not just alcohol, but now harder drugs. They're being um, non-criminalized and even legalized, as I recall, in one place. And to no one's surprise, more and more people are dying of overdoses. 
opio- opioids are another problem as well. Part of that's pain management and gets out of control because as uh, one article, I think it was Vanity Fair, back talked about from the 90s where opioids came from. And part of the plan was to get people addicted so that they can make money off of it. Instead of fixing the problem, they wanted managed care because long-term managed care makes more money. It's an expose. It's quite incredible. And here we are still following down the same tra- path. Why? Because it's about money. It's about here and now, and that's all there is to it. I'll take your money and I'll give you drugs. You'll be happy, I'll be happy. There you go. That's a lie. It's a lie for both parties. And we must implicitly then fight these lies. If his prayer is to remove falsehood and lies from me, his prayer to God, we know part of our prayers is that God gives us the ability and power to fulfill those prayers to some extent, right? We pray for a better job, and so part of that prayer is he'd give us health so that we can find a better job. He'd give us good contacts in his providence. you run across the right person, and you've called people up. So you, you still have to do something. Although, you know, it doesn't always work out. That's not the point. The point is, you pray, and God uses you and uses people around you. One of the instruments he uses for us to remove falsehood and lies, to remove vanities around us that we are bombarded with, is to resist and fight against them. And so, one practical application, then, is to listen to our parents, listen to our elders, listen to those who have shown a lifetime and a lifestyle of truth and veracity of loving it and fighting for it and standing for it and instructing one another. Read your Bible, uh, the Gospels, and the Proverbs, as we have here, uh, to reinforce the truth in a day and age that wants nothing to do with the truth and makes money off of lies, left and right. Keep praying for the truth and the power to follow the truth in your life, brothers and sisters. Support the truth by actions and prayer. Speak the truth to one another and defend it, as circumstances require, of course. You can't fight every battle. So that's the first prayer, prayer for truth, or remove falsehood and lies from me. The second prayer, where he spends more time on, I call the prayer of moderation. Give me neither poverty nor riches, and here he unpacks it. Feed me with the food allotted to me. It's a central idea. Lest I be full and deny you, or lest I be poor and steal and profane your name. He's obviously describing, in one case, prosperity or riches, in the other case, poverty. He's unpacking what he means by neither poverty nor riches and what the dangers that come from that and how he wants something in the middle for him. The prayer of moderation, verses 8 through 9. So first and foremost, the dangers of prosperity give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full, verse 9, and deny you and say, who is the Lord? First he says poverty, then riches gives the main idea of moderation and unpack some details of that by going back to Riches and then uh, poverty. So like A, B, B, A. And God, we trust, is an ironic phrase because it's stamped on the very money that we put our trust in (laughs) often in America. The lust of wealth, we would call it. They're not bowing down and making idols of money, but they are lusting after it. It's an inordinate desire, as our confession talks about. The larger catechism, I mean, in particular. House Food, clothing is not enough. They want more, more, and more. They're never satisfied. Food, houses, new clothes, new cars, better computers, faster cars, newer phones, cables, and of course part of that drive we have in our consumeristic society, which used to be a productive society, where we emphasize producing things and selling it to the world. Up until the time of Reagan, I remember reading across this a couple months ago, and I keep this stuff, 
We were the number one producer of things, most things in the world, exporters of things, just across the board. We exported cars, exported clothes, exported, of course, Hollywood, all kinds of stuff. And now we are what? The number one consumer of all these things as we consume ourselves and our lust and our desires to have more and more material blessings. That's not good. That's the dangers of prosperity. In this case, prosperity eating itself. We were prosperous. I remember as a kid in the 80s, even though I was relatively poor. Um, but we were exporting everything. Just, it was all going out and selling it to the whole world. And now we are consuming it ourselves, always buying something from someone else uh, for ourselves, a service economy as well which isn't necessarily wrong, but what we have is leaders for a long time, presidents, telling us to consume. I remember Bush doing that in early 2000s. Go out and buy more. What? What? Why? Why shouldn't I just save money? Why do I have to buy more? What kind of an approach to life is that? It's an approach to materialism. So what fits the most with this idea, there's nothing else in life but what you have now, and all you have is a body and not a soul. There is no eternality. Just do what you can now. Consume, consume. And of course, who's the, the best benefactor of that? Who, gets the, who reaps the greatest rewards? Well, those who perpetuate the lies well, not just the politicians and the taxes, uh, but big business. They want you to just keep spending. Save money. Dude, you save money. I'm not getting money from you. You're keeping it in the bank. They love this stuff. That's why it's always there in all the commercials. Buy, buy, buy. Take my money, please, we say, and we give it to them, unfortunately. Many Americans love this stuff, and so they are distracted from the important things in life. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Which is but another way of saying, why bother talking to God? I don't need Him. I have all the blessings of this world. I'm happy. I'm fat, dumb, and happy, as I like to say, with life. Why do I need God? Who is this Lord? That's one of the dangers of prosperity. It's a reminder... We read in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's not money, although money is an instrument, but the love of money, that's the source of all kinds of troubles in our life, in this nation, I would argue, in particular. It leads to sorrow. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction, and perdition. First Timothy 6, 9. And so prosperity, and seeking out prosperity for prosperity's sake alone. Abraham was rich. He was prosperous, but he wasn't doing it for his own sake. He did it for his family, for the church. He spread the wealth, as it were. That was his desire. But people who desire to be rich, and only rich for its own sake, fall into temptation and a snare, Paul writes to Timothy, into many foolish and harmful lusts which draw men into destruction and perdition. And all I can think of is Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. And then all the other politicians as well. All the terrible stories they go through. Because they want to be rich. They wanted the stuff now and here. They're willing to do anything, exploit themselves on TV just to make that last dollar. And they lose their soul for money. That's the danger of prosperity. And it often works, as we know, uh, from the frog in the frying pan metaphor that we like to have, the little picture we remind our kids that you start out with a simple entry-level job. You work hard, you save, you use a, buy a beat-up car, get some rentals, no cable, no internet. At least you could pull that off when I was a kid. A few years ago, uh, then a few years go by, you buy a better car, 
better material blessings, cable and the like. More years go by, bigger house, nicer cars, new clothes. And the temptation gets stronger if we don't pay attention to what's going on. And distractions mount up in our prosperity. And fear can also grow. Not a given. Don't walk away from the sermon saying, Pastor says, just being rich is automatically a problem. No, but temptation grows, especially for some people, in a uh, a great proportion, it seems. And they grow in fear of losing their money and losing their prosperity. Some indications of this danger in our lives are forgetting God because of too much prosperity. Uh, One, the twofold, the first hand is the obvious, the overt evidence of seeking out prosperity and the danger of forgetting God. It's simply violating God's law to get rich. And then, then you know you have a problem. That's quite obvious, right? You're stealing, you're lying, you're cheating, coveting, which is mostly a heart condition. The covert, or less obvious, is a little harder. And there's no obvious signs all the time, because that's the nature of being coverts usually in our hearts. If perhaps you talk too much uh, about money and too much fear and driving you and the like and worrying. And so self-examination is needful, especially in our prosperous day and age, to be careful and not to get let um, pro- prosperity consume us. On the other hand, to not let poverty consume. There's danger in poverty, right? Some Christians kind of have this mixed message like, yeah, prosperity is dangerous. Po- poverty, that's a great thing. It shows I'm really godly. If God just takes everything away and I can show the whole world how pious I am. There's that strand that goes on. I grew up in some of those circles that was there. He actually says it's a dangerous thing, or can be. Or lest I be poor and steal, verse 9, and profane the name of my God. I'm so hungry, I go out and steal. For food, it's just but one example he's giving. He's not saying it's only the stealing, but anything else that comes along. It's something concrete to remember, right? Because that's what Proverbs are, concrete things that stick in our minds. But of course, it's not just the stealing that's the temptation of poverty. It's the anger. You're angry at God as I don't have the things my parents had, perhaps, or other people have, and the lusting after prosperity. And thus profane the name of my God or steal his honor. The idea of grasping at God's name. And so poor people try to be rich and fall into traps because of that. And part of that trap, of course, is debt. I've got to buy the latest car to make the world look like uh, make the world think I'm one of them. I'm not, I'm not poor, perhaps. And so the danger of poverty is with us today, not as poverty as such, although I don't wish that on anybody, but that poverty itself also has and can have a problem in which you steal or profane the name of the Lord or you have anger and lust in your heart and whatever else may arise from poverty as a temptation to, in another way, basically say, who is the Lord? The twin ditch problem that we always struggle, it seems, in almost every moral condition of humanity. Too much or too little. And that's why I talk about the golden mean. And he uses that here in the middle of these verses, more or less, verse 8, B, and C, right? Give me neither poverty nor riches. And then he, feed me with the food allotted to me. Because I don't want to be this, and I don't want to be that. I don't want to be too rich, and I don't want to be too poor. And so the summary of prayer 
is give me enough that I will not sin, essentially. Give me enough, God. I pray for the middle way. It's not necessarily a prayer for middle class, per se, but a prayer of a relative position, relative, I would argue, to one's temptation. To one's temptation. Some of us are tempted to things that others are not tempted to. We look at them and go, why in the world are you tempted to drink? I don't get it. Like in my case, I like to pick on myself. I just Alcohol just tastes nasty to me. I, I don't get it. But I have other temptations. This other person's like, I don't have that temptation. What are you talking about? Why is that a problem? Why are you know, too much books, too much entertainment, whatever the case is, cars? It's not a problem for me, but yet we all have different temptations. And so I think this is, that's why he says, feed me with the food, what? Allotted to me, what you know, God, that I need just enough so that I'm not too rich or too poor. Whatever that looks like for you or for him, that it's allotted. God gives the allotment. Both morally, uh, what is required of our situation, and of course, providentially, he's praying that it would work out in history that way. And I think that's important because it can be used, I think, in a wrong way, uh, this proverb uh, that, hey, we should all be middle class. Right. Some people can't handle middle class. It's a level of prosperity. It really is compared to poverty. And that's hard because you're being humbled. Whatever case you may be, whatever Christian may find himself, that God's like, no, you have to be closer to poverty. That works better for you to keep you humble. I don't know. I'm not going to you know, pronounce that in your situation. Uh, you know where your temptation is more than I do of too much prosperity or too much poverty. And so I think this is a prayer of moderation. The food allotted to me is the clue here. To accept God's plan that there is what I need in my life. And it reminds me of Exodus 16.8 where we read, And the gathering of the food in the desert with Israel coming out of Egypt. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. And that's this prayer. It varies according to our vocations and callings in life, doesn't it? And we see that not as a mystical prayer. How how am I going to find it, God? But we see it just in the practical everyday life of how prosperous are you? I mean, you can tell through your life how you've gone up or gone down or stayed level in your relative socioeconomic status, as we say today. And that's where God has put you, more or less. Unless, of course, you brought yourself there through deceit and lying. That's obviously a red flag of a problem, isn't it? But beyond that, it's pretty much where God, you, just, you can't control lots of things. You think you do, but we know it's ultimately God, isn't it? Who directs us to our callings and vocations in life. It's what we can handle, brothers and sisters. And that's the prayer of moderation relative to our abilities and temptations. What we can handle more compared to someone else or less to someone else. And different seasons in our life as well. When you're young, middle-aged, or old. That's the prayer. That should be all our prayers. But behind all this is the assumption of Philippians 4, 11 and following. Where Paul writes about a form of moderation in his temperament and his expectations. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Part of the Proverbs prayer, the writer's prayer here of Solomon, 
insofar as he wants contentment, is the same as Paul. We often hear, because he says, feed me my lot. I'll, I'll be content with the allotment of food, of blessing, of material growth or no growth. According to your allotment, God, I'll accept it. That's contentment. We often hear we should accept our circumstances at all times and all places and should pray instead for a better heart attitude and not pray for a change in circumstances. And yet we read here in Proverbs 30, he prays for a change in circumstances. Neither neither too rich nor too poor. There's a time for that. But if you cannot change and nothing changes, you're content with God's allotment for you. He's not denying what Paul's affirming elsewhere, is what I'm saying. So you can pray but always with a prayer saying, thy will be done. I mean, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Things don't change. Paul ended up hungry at times. Other times he had plenty of food. Can't control it often. To the extent you can, because God has so gifted us in his providence that we can, then we should, and do it for the advantage, not only for ourselves, but especially for those around us and our friends, for one another. And so let us, brothers and sisters, seek the wisdom we read in these verses, the wisdom of this dual prayer a prayer of truth, and a prayer of moderation to avoid the extremes of the American life in both these regards, for they swim in lies and rejoice at excess. Pray for truth over vanities and work to that end. And pray for moderation over extremes and work to that end. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to grow thereby and learn wisdom here and apply it in our lives, God. We pray with Solomon here, to feed me with the food, with the blessing, with the position, wherever we are in life allotted to us, we pray, and to accept it. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 92a. 92a.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.